Luke chapter 22. It is no secret that one of the greatest stumbling blocks in evangelism is the hypocrisy of Christ's followers. One of their major turnoffs to Christianity are Christians who discredit the name of Jesus. As the followers of Christ, we know such criticism by unbelievers is really just an excuse. We have a firm grasp of the truth that Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. But it's also true that the sins and weaknesses of God's people are a source of deep disappointment to us. It is disillusioning when the followers of Jesus act like the world. It is discouraging to witness our own sins and spiritual shortcomings, to see how incompletely we love, how timid we are to stand for Jesus, how self-oriented, how susceptible to temptation, how disloyal to Christ and dull to grasp God's truth. The Christian is supposed to think and to act and to talk like Jesus. But so often, we do not. Yet here is the wonder of divine grace. Jesus continues to love us with unwavering loyalty. I speak to those who know Christ as personal Savior. Jesus continues to love us with unwavering loyalty. Amazing grace. In the midst of our maddening immaturity, Jesus unceasingly labors in the interest of our spiritual maturity. He loves us enough to rebuke us. He warns us. He encourages us. He equips us. He prays for us. He restores us to fellowship. Jesus loves His people to the very end. And He tirelessly labors in the interests of our maturity. Though our fidelity to Him is weak, His loyalty to us is strong. And we witness this attribute of Jesus in bold colors on the final night that He spends with His disciples. As they eat the Passover meal together, Jesus' Spirit staggers under the immeasurable weight of His mission. As they recline in the candle-lit room together, Jesus knows that Judas has betrayed Him to His enemies. Strive to understand in this moment the mind of Christ. He knows that Judas has betrayed Him. He knows that He will die on the morrow as the sacrificial Lamb of God. He will endure the fire of God's wrath in the place of sinners. As He eats this meal, Jesus knows that He will soon cry, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? At this meal, Jesus labors to convey to His disciples the pivotal transition that is about to take place in salvation history. His own blood. In His blood, the new covenant. His death will mark the new approach to God forevermore. But as the drama of salvation history rises to a fever pitch in that room, 
as Jesus' soul groans under the weight of the spiritual battle that rages between him and Satan, the disciples are languishing in a morass of abject spiritual immaturity. Yet in their unflattering immaturity, as it is exposed, we see the grace of Jesus. Their unflattering immaturity is exposed by the stark contrast of Christ's glorious beauty as he patiently matures and nurtures their souls. Jesus will deal first on this night with treasonous disloyalty. First, I say in the context of Luke here, we believe that Luke very probably arranges his material thematically. We do not have strict chronology here, but he takes out pieces of that meal and he strings them together here. And we notice, think of all that is on Jesus' mind, all that weighs upon his spirit, and he deals in this moment with treacherous disloyalty. Going back, as we considered last week, to verse 20, in the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is soon to lay down his life as the sacrifice that will ratify the new covenant between God and his people. Salvation history will soon turn on his saving sacrifice. But, says Jesus, verse 21, and the Greek text here would read, however, behold, it is a point of tremendous transition here in his statement. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. However, I draw your attention to this. The hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Eating together at a table was nearly a sacred act in the ancient Near East. This meal was a symbol of the oneness and the fellowship of this group of men. Yet right there at the very table, a traitor reclines with Jesus. Verse 22, the Son of Man, he says, will go. As it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Nothing will happen that has not been decreed by God. But the man who willingly betrays Jesus will be consumed by God's wrath. Judas Iscariot has followed Jesus through all sorts of trials and dangers. Judas had obeyed Jesus and gone from town to town and village to village proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And all the time, not one of the other disciples suspected Judas was a spiritual fraud, that he was treacherously disloyal to Christ. But Jesus knows this, and he drops this bombshell at this meal. The one who will betray me, the one who has betrayed me, is here. You can imagine how that hits the disciples. And we notice in verse 23 that they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. The Greek word translated question here could be translated to debate, to dispute, to examine together. They pick up this point and they begin to discuss it among themselves. 
They're shocked at the horror of the possibility, and they begin to vigorously discuss the matter. There is a traitor in the midst of the most loyal followers of Jesus. Who is it? What is going on? Who could have done such a thing? Is it you? It's not me. I assure you it's not me. The debate is going on among them. Combining the gospel accounts here, we discover that one of them says to Jesus with heart-wrenching anxiety, Surely, Lord, not I. And one after another, they address that same point to Jesus personally. Surely, Lord, not I. Surely, Lord, not I. And on it goes around the table. They're doing their job. Their master's been betrayed. They need to discern who it is. But all they end with, it appears, is utter confusion. Who could this be? Individually assuring Jesus that it is not them, in effect, they wonder out loud if it is. It's a horrifying reality. Treason is in our hearts. Given the right circumstances, relying on our own strength, we can betray Jesus. It's a horrifying thought. Amazingly, Jesus does not stop Judas, and Jesus does not shame Judas. Jesus seats Judas at a prominent spot at the table. Jesus dips a piece of bread in a bowl of stew of sorts, and he hands it to Judas. It is an act of kindness and friendship in that culture. Jesus graciously and quietly dismisses Judas into the dark night to carry out his treasonous plan. We see the heart of our Savior here. You know when someone has betrayed you, when someone has simply hurt your feelings, it's sometimes hard to just look in their eye. But Jesus extends this act of kindness and friendship, and he seats Judas at a promise, prominent place at this meal. And he lets him go. In the company of a treacherous, treasonous, disloyal, false disciple, Jesus acts with dignity and grace. Judas has sinned against Jesus in the most wicked of ways. But Jesus gently rebukes Judas in an offer of reconciliation and skillfully encourages Judas to repent. In that room that night were 12 of the most dedicated followers of Jesus, and in that same room was treacherous treason. Jesus deals with this treacherous disloyalty, but he secondly deals with selfish ambition, beginning at verse 24. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Again, I don't know that this is chronologically placed here by Luke, but it's certainly intended to draw the connection. They are questioning who it is among them who is the traitor, and at the same time fighting with one another over who is the greatest. It's a very unflattering picture, certainly. This argument was probably not groundless display of sheer pride as much as it was a competitive grasp for prominence in the kingdom which they were sure Jesus would soon establish. Jesus has told them He will die. But they refuse to allow that prophecy to really register. 
And so here with selfish ambition, they wrangle with one another over who will be the most important in the administration of Christ's kingdom. Again, we witness the grace of Jesus who gently rebukes them in such a way as to build up their faith. Verse 25, and let me just add in here as an editorial note, would you not be about this point ready to let these guys have a piece of your mind? Think of what Jesus is dealing with, and here they are fighting over who's the greatest. But Jesus instructs them graciously. He says, the kings of the Gentiles, verse 25, lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. That is, the rules of the world dictate that the more powerful the leader, the more people the leader rules and controls. And a leader's greatness is realized when those who are ruled and controlled give honorable titles to the one in charge. Benefactor was a coveted title for kings and rulers, a title of high esteem. This is the way the world works. Verse 26, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. In that culture, as in ours, the young and the servants are the lowest in cultural status, much more prominent in their culture than in ours. But privilege came with age, and privilege came with wealth and with responsibility. But my followers, said Jesus, Do not play by those rules. Jesus' followers are to live in a counter-cultural manner. Jesus is not saying leaders should not lead. He is not saying that the mature should act as if they are immature. He is saying that genuine greatness is found not in those who separate themselves from the lowly, but in those who identify with them. Not in those who wield blunt power, but in those who humbly serve the interests of others. It is a radical way of looking at authority, and Jesus himself is the example. Verse 27, for we read there, who is greater, he says, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? That U-shaped, low-lying table there that night, there are servants that were there in the middle of that U serving these disciples' food. It was clear who the servant was and who the important person was at this meal. Who's greater, he says. It's obvious in our culture, but he says then, is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? And we remember here John 13. We have the benefit of having that information provided by John that Jesus at this meal went behind this table to the feet of those who reclined and washed their feet as a slave. Were the disciples completely off base? Were they utterly delusional in their desire to rule in Christ's kingdom? It's a point I think in my nature I would just leave off. But Jesus in his grace brings up that point that they're not off base. 
In fact, he says, verse 28, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What gracious words. Something amazing just happened there, if you didn't notice. Verse 28, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. Here they are squabbling among themselves as to who is most important, and Jesus looks through their immaturity and sees the very best in them. Seeing them at their worst, Jesus is able to see also what is best. He's not blind to their failures. This is no I'm okay, you're okay expression of unconditional positive regard. But Jesus honors these men by recognizing their perseverant loyalty to him. You, my friends, you have borne my rejection. You have endured the pressures, faced the opposition, risked untold dangers, and weathered many inconveniences. And he does not hesitate to to confirm that they will indeed rule in his kingdom. Verse 29 and they will dine again with him during his millennial rule. Remember, he has said, I will not drink again until I drink in my kingdom. That night, they will scatter in fear and disarray. Their hearts will soon be filled with an incredible despair. But Jesus gives them hope. On a great future day, Jesus will organize the nation around them. You will sit on thrones, judging, that is, administering justice to the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 30 is, I don't believe in any respect, a reference to the disciples' leadership of the church. You will eat and drink at my table and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Some take this verse to read that way. This is simply a reference to their leadership of the church. Romans 9-11 through reveals that the spotlight of salvation history will fall again on national Israel. That Jesus will establish His millennial reign. And the disciples will rule the twelve tribes of Israel. We have here both a present tense verb and a future tense. I am conferring on you a kingdom in the present tense, and I think that probably would include with this moment his death on the cross. I am conferring on you a kingdom and a future tense. You will sit on thrones. So the kingdom is being conferred on them, but they will not sit on thrones exercising rule over Israel until a future day. These same men are very unique men. They are the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ, and they are the same men who will someday rule over Israel in the millennial kingdom. These men, these squabbling, selfishly ambitious, at times disloyal followers of Jesus, the grace of God comes always by election, never by merit. 
And what a glorious day that will be for these weak men now made strong. But that day is not here yet for these. And Jesus addresses their fearless leader, Simon Peter, to make now that very point. He deals now with weak-willed disloyalty. In Judas's case, it was treacherous disloyalty. It was betrayal. It was treason. That is not what it is in Peter's heart. It is weak-willed disloyalty. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. A cosmic spiritual battle was raging. The hosts of hell had assembled for a full frontal assault on Jesus and his small band of brothers. Perhaps in a seam reminiscent of Job, Satan goes to God and says, I want your disciples. I want access. I want to be able to attack. Verse 31, the you there is plural. Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat, you disciples as wheat. Then he turns to the singular usage as he addresses Simon Peter and says, but I have prayed for you, you Simon, that your faith may not fail. To sift as wheat is an idiom, something like to have you for lunch might be something we would use. But Jesus prays for Peter. The goal is not Peter's ease, you'll note. It is not that Peter would be removed from all danger. The goal is his enduring faith, that his faith would not fail. The idea of turning back implies that Peter will first prove disloyal to Christ, and Peter is stung by that prospect. When, the end of verse 32, you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I've prayed for you, but you're going to need to turn back. Verse 33, but he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter, I think, is sincere. He just does not understand the intensity of the battle that faces him. He is like a soldier begging his superior officer to let him lead the assault on enemy lines, not realizing that as soon as he encounters the enemy, he will run in fear. Abraham Lincoln once said that the smartest of all God's creatures is the chicken because it does not cluck until after it has laid its egg. Peter is sincere in his clucking. But he does not realize how weak he is. When a man says he will never, ever falter or fear, he's usually on the threshold of utter failure. Peter should have held his tongue and wept. Instead, he opens his mouth and he fills the air with empty assurances. Not me. And even compares himself in another account with all of the other disciples. Maybe them, but not me. I am with you to death, Jesus. Enemy fire will humble him this very night. 
And Jesus answered graciously, realistically. Verse 34, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Those are terrifying words. I don't know that we can grasp their gravity. You will deny that you know me. Before dawn of the next morning, the self-assured Peter will say, I know not the man. How does Jesus respond? Does he shame Peter? Does he give him a piece of his mind, as we say, to let him know where he stands? Do you know what Jesus does for Peter, whom he knows will betray him that night? He prays for him. He takes Peter's name before the Father, and he says, Dear Father, I pray for my brother Peter that his faith will not falter. The scene shifts again, and while this scene is mostly instructional, there is, I think, another but here. Treacherous disloyalty, selfish ambition, pride, weak-willed pride. There is here, I think, Jesus dealing now with impatient triumphalism. That might be a bit of a stretch. And as I read the text, it's more of a stretch than maybe some. But I think here there is correction inherent in what Jesus now says as he prepares the disciples for his departure. They want the kingdom to come. In fact, believe that it will be here soon. They want to bypass the suffering part and for Jesus to rule. And Jesus' instructions here now are very counter to that prospect. He says, notice there, verse 35, he asked them, what, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He takes them back to earlier missions, Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 10. In His providence, God provided for these disciples. They went from town to town. They went from village to village, proclaiming the name of Christ. And they would look for people in those villages who say, Jesus, yes, we believe He's Messiah. Come and stay with us in our home. There was no problem doing that. Jesus was a popular rabbi. Now there were many who were against him, and there were villages, entire villages that rejected the disciples as they went on that mission. But remember that mission, says Jesus, you could go and count on someone in some town to take care of you. Those days are over. That's not going to be the future. We lack nothing, they said. He says to them, but now. If you have a purse, that is a money pouch, take it. And also a bag, that is, in which to bring provisions, a change of clothes perhaps, and traveling supplies. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. That's sell your blanket that you wrap over you at night to get a sword. Because if you don't have a sword, you're not going to need your cloak. What is Jesus saying? Well... 
what he is saying is in connection with verse 37. It is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. I think the point is, I am going to die. He quotes Isaiah 53, which prophesies his death as substitutionary sacrifice for sin. I am going to die. In another context, the sheep will scatter. They will be shepherdless. Jesus will be rejected. He will die. If people rejected and killed Him, the life of His followers will also be at risk. They were fighting over seats in the kingdom. Jesus corrects them to realize they must look for a long, hard slog of rejection and difficulty. They should be looking not for seats in the kingdom, but for a sword. The disciples said to Him, verse 38, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough. He replied. Now it's commonly held that when Jesus said, get a sword, he was speaking figuratively. In fact, time does not permit, nor does interest probably permit, a long discussion in how the Roman church has taken the two swords here, nor how others have taken these two, this sword, the other sword being the sword of the Word of God. But most would say that Jesus is speaking figuratively here. I say that to you to say I'm... I'm off on my own here, uh, swaying in the wind, but I think Jesus is talking literally. I think he's saying, take a sword. The reason people say that the sword here is figurative is because Jesus does not permit the disciples to fight the Roman troops in the garden. And we remember that as he tells Peter, put the sword away and heals the man's ear that Peter lops off. We also know that the followers of Jesus accepted persecution. They did not resist it with a sword, and that is right. I think, however, that he refers to the disciples' need of protection here against robbers and wild animals as they travel with the gospel because they aren't going to be invited in people's homes. And when they say we have two swords, he says that is enough. In other words... He's not talking about military resistance of Rome. Jesus isn't that foolish, and he's, I don't even believe that his disciples could possibly be that foolish to think that the 12 of them were going to resist his arrest. They, of course, aren't thinking in those terms very well, but I don't think that's the point. I think the point is you're going to be on travels all on your own. There's going to be wild animals, and there are going to be robbers coming along the way, and when a robber descends upon you, it's really not the best time to witness for Christ. It's a time to protect yourself. So it's not armed resistance. But neither, I think, is it figurative. Again, I stand on my own thus far. I haven't found anybody to say that. But perhaps that's a possible way to look at it, that he's speaking here very literally. When he says that is enough, most take this as, shut up, I've had enough of this. I take it as two swords is sufficient for what you're going to need. They wanted a triumphal arrival of the kingdom, is the point, in anyone's estimation. They needed to rest in the plan and timing of God and to count on a long period of rejection and difficult labor in the gospel enterprise. Jesus will leave this upper room. He will leave rather rapidly, suddenly. And this event will be left in their memory. But as we scan it, as we look back on it, 
we see how very weak they were. This ragtag group of humble Galileans, how very weak they were. And we are left with the impression of God's grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. He confronted their sinful attitudes. He countered their pride. He labored with them to overcome their immature disloyalty to Him. He prayed for them, and He encouraged their perseverance and countered their impatient triumphalism. They were weak, but He was strong. They were, in fact, a mess, but He was a rock. We have a sense of identity with them, don't we? We know in our failures, we know in our sins, that there is an inherent disloyalty with which we struggle, a disloyalty to Jesus Christ. You deal with it, and I deal with it. One thing that we must consider is the importance of leaving off our sin. To hold to our sin is folly in light of the beauty of Jesus Christ and the command of His Word. Let it go. What you cling to that separates you from Christ is nothing but a weight. It will drag you down to the bottom. Let it go. But what we must also see in this account is not only the need to let go of our sin, but to embrace the beauty of Jesus Christ. Is this just the way that it is? Is, just this, is this just the way that the Christian life is supposed to take place? Constant battles with disloyalty and smallness of heart? Not at all. You remember, this is not the end of the story for these disciples and it's not the end of the story for us. In the end, ironically, the answer for these men is that Jesus will be gone. Because when Jesus is gone, He sends His Holy Spirit who ministers in their hearts to provide power and strength. It will be good for Jesus to leave. For when the baptism of the Spirit comes, this weak-willed, weak-minded band of followers will be transformed into the bedrock of the church and will be used to turn the world upside down for Jesus. Jesus never gives up on His people. Never. He sends His Spirit rather to fill us with His power. He labors for our maturity. He labors for your maturity. If you know Him as personal Savior, you have been born again and know Christ in a saving way. Jesus is working on your maturity. He is doing that this morning. As we consider the beauty and the glory of Jesus in His suffering, we can know that He is doing this for us. And so we see again the need to leave our sin, to follow Christ, to pursue maturity in Him, not in our own strength and selfish ambition, but in the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. Let's bow for prayer as we meet with the Lord. 
before his throne. I trust, Father, with all my heart that there is no Judas among us. I pray, dear Father, that any who would not be genuine believers in Jesus Christ would come to saving faith in Him. I ask, dear Father, perhaps there is a Peter among us. There is someone who in very near future will run into a place in which they deny that they know Jesus. Dear Father, prepare them for the battle. For many of us, we know a little bit of what Peter faced. We know the disloyalty. We know the selfish ambition. We know the impatience with your plan. But God, we thank you for restoration and pray that we as a church might be an assembly that builds one another up in the faith. Not an assembly that simply excuses sin as what is normal for Christians. But I pray that we would be an assembly that gives our full strength and focus to walk worthy of you, our Lord and our God. We need your help and your aid. Without you, we can do nothing. But with the strength of the Spirit of God within us, flowing from us. May you produce your fruit in our lives. And may one of those fruits be in this assembly, in our individual hearts, a tenacious loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. May we give our all to that end as you empower us and strengthen us. Father, for any who are dealing with sin and spiritual disruption and weakness in their life, May we turn, and may we be like the apostles after Pentecost, and not like the apostles before. May your Spirit have that effect in our lives, and may you work within us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.